I'm thankful to be here with you on this first Sunday of 2018. Amen. Uh, grab your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. If you, you don't have a Bible or forgot it at home, we have a, a, a large um, bookcase of them at the door and the entry into the room there. And welcome to grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to make that yours. Um, no, no better gift we could give you than the Word of God. You also have scriptures on the screen to follow along. And for you note takers in our new uh, note taking system, be able to write down the references of the scriptures we cover and and um, the other details there related to our, our sermon. As we approach the two-year mark of our sermon series through the Gospel of John, uh, we only have chapter 20 and chapter 21 to go. Uh, I praise God for the joyful and fruitful journey this has been for our church. Um, as we closed chapter 19, Jesus had been crucified and put in the grave. As we open chapter 20, we find numerous followers of Christ interacting with the first major sign of Jesus' resurrection, the empty tomb. The last two chapters of John focuses on the resurrected Christ. Jesus is alive. Jesus rising from the dead is a great miracle. Why? Because people who die typically are and remain dead. But not Christ. He rose and offers for us to join him in power and glory. We cannot make too much of the death of Christ. But I believe we are often guilty of making too little of the resurrection of Christ. It is not only a great act of God, but it is a critical part of salvation in Christ. It is Jesus' resurrection. In Jesus' resurrection, we are justified and given the true hope of eternal life with God. For if Jesus did not conquer death to reign with God forever, how can we expect to? The Christian good news is not only that Christ died for our sins, but also that he rose again on the third day, according to scriptures. He was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. That's Romans 4, 25. If Christ is not raised, said the apostle Paul, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. It's 1 Corinthians 15. So let's lean in this morning and, and joyfully seek to grow in faith and increase in our worship of our good God as we jump into today's text and, and these first amazing discoveries of the evidences of the resurrected Christ. John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. While it was still dark, and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. John tells us it was very early in the morning. It was the first day of the week. So it's Sunday morning. Jesus was crucified on Friday. And in the early hours of Sunday morning, as a faithful follower of Jesus, Mary Magdalene makes her way to the place where Jesus' body was laid. It was still dark out. Matthew 27 tells us that she had reason for expecting to find the Roman guard there. Matthew 28 tells us there had just been a great earthquake. The other Gospels inform us that she had no male disciples accompanying her. It was in the midst of the feast, which meant thousands of strangers were probably sleeping under any slight shelter <clears throat> near the walls of Jerusalem and thereabout. But none of these things, none of these threatening or concerning things kept Mary and another sister in Christ from the place where her Savior's body had been laid. One theologian of old commented how much more knowledge of spiritual things many of us have but sadly far lacking the faith 
and radical love for the Lord to pursue him with such abandon as Mary did that morning. Mary had received so much grace from Jesus, and her response was a committed, faithful following of Christ, a a, a committed pursuit of him, full of gratitude, gratitude that knew no bounds. Jesus has cast away demons out of her, we're we're told, and, and over the gospel narratives we discover she's a faithful follower of Christ. Mentioned many more times than than many of the 12 disciples. And this caused me to contemplate in preparation and to ask you today, do you realize how much more grace you have received in God's forgiveness of all of your sin? And yet, does that gratitude overflow for a lifetime or are we guilty of thinking along our path that the amazing grace of God might just be somehow insufficient for the things we face in that time And we come back to him. Instead of pursuing forward in utter gratefulness, we find ourselves coming back to God, somehow thinking that we need more grace. A.W. Pink's an old dead theologian that's blessed us immensely. He said it this way. It is those who have had the clearest sight of their deservingness of hell, whose hearts are most moved at the amazing grace which snatched them as brands from the burning, that are the most devoted among Christ's people. Let us pray daily, then, that it may please God to grant us a deeper realization of our sinfulness and a deeper appreciation of our surpassing worth of the surpassing worthiness of his son so that we may serve and glorify him with increasing zeal and faithfulness i pray that his grace would be sufficient and truly would propel us consistently forward in gratitude and service of our great God. What does Mary discover upon arriving at the tomb? The stone has been rolled away. I don't have time this morning to go into why this was so shocking, for it was not small nor light with the elite Roman guard sent to bring an extra layer of protection around the tomb so that no shadiness would happen. Essentially, it would not have been easy to remove the stone. But have you ever really considered why the stone was rolled away by God? Naturally, one might think so that Jesus could walk out. But Jesus didn't need the stone to be rolled away to exit, for he is God. Just as we will see later in chapter 20, Jesus suddenly appeared in the upper room, although it's clearly stated that the doors and the windows were all locked and closed. He didn't need the stone to be removed. So why did the stone need to be rolled away? So that the witnesses could come in and see that Jesus was no longer there. I mean, we, we naturally think the stone's been rolled away so it, as, as it's connected to the exit of Jesus. But the stone was rolled away so that witnesses could, could see he's gone and then go testify 
It is rolled away for the testimony of the resurrection. And so, what did Mary do upon seeing this revelation? Verse 2, So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Mary runs to Peter and to John. John is referenced often as the one whom Jesus loves. The author of our gospel here, the gospel of John, are the two in reference. And it's interesting that Mary doesn't think first of the resurrection, but of foul play. She sees the the stone rolled away and comes to conclusion that something shady has happened. They removed him, and so she runs in a panic to the disciples. It says he's been taken. The Jewish leaders would go on record to say that they believe that Jesus' disciples stole the body in Matthew 27. This is It highlights all the more in many of these references that grave robbery was not uncommon in that day. But let's read further. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. So interesting extra clarity we're given in, in, in this gospel testimony here in verse 3 through 5. It says first that they ran. Once again, Mary runs. They're running to the tomb. When you are excited or in an emergency, you don't walk. You run. If you're listening to this sermon and you're not saved, maybe you know religion, maybe you know what it is to attend a church and maybe have some of that in your background, but your testimony is not that you have died yourself, confessed your sin before God, and trusted your life to Jesus. But if and when you finally see the good news of Jesus and what it means for you, what God has done and accomplished on your behalf to free you from what you deserve because of your sin, to give you new life in Him forever, you won't stroll to confess your sin in that moment or give your life to Jesus you will run into his arms with repentance, with with a heart change like nothing else to, to seek him. I pray that for any of you who are unbelievers, that you don't stroll in considering even the gospel of our Lord, but that you would run to the good news of Jesus, to these truths, that by God's grace you would be saved. They ran. John, the beloved, outran his elder Peter and got there first. Peeking into the tomb and seeing the linens left behind was enough for him not to go in. Grave robbers would not have left the expensive linens used in burials. He likely paused to not enter for a couple of things. Likely, out of respect for his elder, the slow poke, who hadn't arrived yet. <laughs> and to acknowledge the formality required in the culture that two witnesses must be present to establish a valid testimony of what they saw happen. I can imagine what is running 
through John's mind as he waits for Peter to arrive. Jesus isn't there. But his burial wrappings are. Verse 6. The first part of verse 6 then says, Then Simon, Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. Peter, being Peter, rushes right into the tomb upon his arrival. I, I can just kind of picture him. He's full stride and just like dips or slides like into second base. Like he's just <laughs> right in there. And now the both of them are on the scene to evaluate what happened here. And before we look at, at this text in specific, I want us not to miss something very simple but profound in the details of the Holy Spirit compelling John to write these details for us to study. And just in the, the nuance of the details of the difference of John's reaction and investigation and now Peter's, there's a diversity there. Both of them interact with the tomb, and this is a very big moment, but they both interact with it differently. And it raises a reality that I think we need to slow and consider that in the body of Christ, we are all very different. And not the same, but still one in Christ. And I ask you, do you embrace the differences of those around you, or does your flesh level others with expectations that they must do things the way you want them to be done? According to your expectations, one of the ways I, I see this play out in the most extreme way as a pastor is in times of mourning. When a loved one is about to die or has died, it is amazing to me to watch a very close family, married couple, brothers and sisters, kids respond oh so differently to those moments. And there's something in our flesh that wants to quickly say, you know what, how dare you respond that way and not this way? There's something in us that wants to make everyone kind of fit into what we believe the moment should look like. And it's an often warning I, I lovingly give to families to say, lower that expectation. Everyone mourns differently. Be careful how you level each other in those moments with expectation. We must embrace the uniqueness of the sweet diversity of the church. It is how we thrive in Christ. It is a major part of, I believe, our gospel testimony to a watching world. Theologian J.C. Ryle lifted something so profound from Peter and John's diverse handling of this moment that I want us to consider this and cherish it together. He says, The hearts of both at this critical juncture were full of hopes and fears, anxieties and expectations, all tangled together, yet each acts in his own characteristic fashion. Let us learn from this to make allowance for wide varieties in the individual character of believers. To do so will save us much trouble in the journey of life and prevent many an uncharitable thought. Let us not judge brethren harshly and set them down in a low place because they do not see or feel as we see and feel. The flowers in the Lord's garden are not all the same color and one scent. They are, though they are all planted by the one Spirit. 
the subjects of Christ's kingdom are not all exactly of one tone or temperament. Though they all love the same Savior and are written in the same book of life. The church has some in its ranks who are like Peter and some who are like John. But a place for all and a work for all to do. Let us love all who love Christ in sincerity and thank God that they love him at all. Amen? May it be so for us. And maybe as a result of this view and observation this morning, you have some business to do with the Lord to confess sin and unrighteous judgment of leveling a brother or sister with your expectation, that you would confess it, that you would seek to restore practice that would honor God. May it be so for each of us. Now look with me at what Peter sees as he enters the tomb. Second part of verse 6 and 7, he saw the linen cloth lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in place by itself. The burial linens are laying there, and the face cloth is neatly folded in its place. If you are stealing Jesus' body, you wouldn't take the time to take off his burial wraps, for that would take time, and they're valuable. And then fold the face wrap like you're tidying up the place. You would grab him, and wrap them up and get out of there. Do you remember when Lazarus emerged from the tomb, when the Lord instructed in the power of God for him to rise from the grave? He came out wearing all his burial wraps. Yet another sign that the resurrection of Jesus is not a flustered response, but a precise work of God. Jesus strategically left behind his wraps and catch this. Oh, I pray you do see the weight of this because he no longer needed them. This gets to have such a a deeper meaning in that all that is related to his burial is put away. Let me ask you, why do his burial linens need to go with him if he's no longer buried or in need of them? I believe the Holy Spirit's emphasis in this detail, in John's narrative, is to show us that they observed with the clearest evidences of a deliberate and composed transaction. There were no signs of haste or fear. What had taken place had been done decently and in order, not by a thief or a friend taking away a body. All this is pointing to the miraculous resurrection of Jesus and not any other kind of foul play. Picture it with me for a moment. What lay before Peter and John was not the object they sought, Christ himself, but instead the trophies of what? His victory over the power of death. Before them lay the items that are intended to bind a dead man and hold his body into the decay of death. They are the remnants now of a battle that was waged and a sign that the victor walked away. He did not see the desired demise that his enemies intended, but instead walked away victorious. Amen? He stands as a sign of what is to come for each of us to trust our lives to Jesus. For in Christ's second coming, all of his people, in Christ we too will also be rid of everything connected with the old creation. 
Like Paul says in Philippians 3, 20 21, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Praise God. This is what Peter and John observed, which is why it leads to what we read next. Verse 8. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and believed. What a moment for these two. (laughs) I mean, think about what they've gone through with Christ. Think about the weight that's been on them since his death. Can't even imagine what's rushing in their minds. And all of a sudden, remembering the Lord's teaching. All of his words of needing to die and then to rise that they just didn't comprehend before. They see it and now they believe. All of his speaking of what must take place. Their belief must be overflowing with the clarity of the sovereign hand of God in all of these events that they've been experiencing just as Jesus said they would take place. What a contrast to their likely state of mind in the hours before as they worked through the long hours of Friday night, of Saturday, of Saturday night, a time filled with sober and in a somber fog of the death of their master. But now they see, in a way they had not yet, that God has been at work in all of these things. They see with clear eyes as they witness Jesus absent from his tomb without his burial wraps, and John sees it, And they believe. They believe what? They knew that Jesus is alive. It says, continuing, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And we see, we know that they've struggled with it to comprehend it, to understand. Until this moment, they had not fully grasped or even recalled the scriptures of old and the many teachings of the Lord that he would die and then rise in three days. What a sad reality of how deaf to God's truths we can be. It's not that they had not been told, for in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, we're told that even the enemies of Jesus recalled his teaching, his specific words, that he would rise in three days. They've got it all over their minds. In Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, David prophesies that for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. In Acts 2, later as the preaching of the gospel commences, as the new church is emerging, Peter preaches the fulfillment of David's prophecy in Psalm 16, that God would deliver and raise Jesus from the grave is the fulfillment of what David said. Listen to Peter's words. Now gets it, and now kind of look forward with me. Now Peter's preaching about these things. He says in Acts 2, 22-36, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. And therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will always dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Amen? What what a proclamation. What a sermon. These are the words that many would go on to hear. The gospel preached, the resurrected Christ. Proclaimed for those whom God would give ears to hear and eyes to see would believe and be saved. So Peter would recall with great clarity the telling of Jesus' resurrection. It had just not been in clear view for Peter until now. Jesus himself had spoken of the resurrection many times to his disciples, and yet they had not understood. Jesus said in John chapter 2, if you would remember... John chapter 2, that was a long time ago for us. Let's turn there briefly. Look with me at John 2 again. You're in John 20. Go back to John 2. And let's be reminded of its good news, the good news that it is for us today as these things unfold. John chapter 2, look at 18 through 22. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Church, that's what's happening right here. The Jews had no clue what he's talking about. That he was talking about his own body as the temple and how it would be raised up. They thought he was talking about the temple, the building the temple that they built. Saying it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? In the same passage, John tells us later when Jesus would rise from the grave, the disciples would remember this and their faith, their belief would be emboldened. And I must ask you today, have you heard the testimony of these things in Scripture? Not seeing the resurrected Christ with your own eyes, but you have heard the testimony that he is risen from Scripture, the testimony of the prophecies that he must rise. And based on that testimony, have you believed, put your faith in Jesus? Or are you like the Jews who are still looking for a sign? 
The word that testifies that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus did indeed rise from the grave is enough for us today. But you only will believe it if God gives you eyes to to see and ears to hear. Jesus shared this reality in a story in Luke 16 to make his point. I'm going to share it with you again today. Luke 16, 19 through 31. There was a rich man, he says, who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and is in Hades, being in torment. He lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us and he said then i beg you father to send him to my father's house for i have five brothers so that they may so that he may warn them lest they come into this place of torment but abraham said they have moses and the prophets let them hear them and he said no father abraham but if you if someone goes to them from the dead they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What the rich man requests seems logical. Good reason would say, to be sure these guys repent, let's send them something powerful, something influential, some kind of great sign. But Jesus' point is crystal clear. His word is enough. It is an authority above all else. Above all experience and signs and reason. So let me make something very clear. True faith in God doesn't require the stilts of circumstance or the fanfare of signs and wonders because it is grounded in the word of God alone. God's word is sufficient. Why? Because those given ears to hear, their faith will stand on the testimony of God and need not physical proof, or I would contest that at the end of the day it's not faith. But God in his mercy did give us a great sign. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. And this is what Jesus is pointing to. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jewish listeners to this were thinking, the building, tear it down. And they're hearing Jesus somehow declare that he has such mad construction skills, he'll rebuild it in three days. And on a special level, you can see how that would be an absolutely amazing sign. Some kind of Lego master builder, right? (laughs) Sorry, it's (laughs) adolescent world that I live in in my home. What, What Jesus is talking about is not that, but is much greater. He's talking about something that all of human history has needed. Something far greater than a building or a centerpiece in the Jewish faith. Something far greater than an amazing miracle with only temporary benefits. 
No, the temple of his body would be torn apart in that he would bear all the sins of his people in the entire world and he would conquer that death. He would slay those sins and rise. Jesus is saying, I will do this. Do you remember he says it again later in John 10, moving back towards chapter 20, 17 and 18. Jesus says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Praise God. He lays it down for our sin. He takes it up again. When they destroy it with his permission and by the will of his father, he builds it again to rise in three days. Amen? He's saying, I am the new temple. When I raise my body from the dead, my chosen people from all around the world come to God through me. There will be no more need for pilgrimages to Jerusalem. There will only be rebirth of the heart to living faith in Jesus Christ. When Jesus died, it says in Matthew 27, 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The veil of the temple ripped from top to bottom. The holy of holies exposed. Why is this important, church? Because we need to see the old covenant and the whole sacrificial system coming to an end. The Holy of Holies is exposed in that it was not set apart anymore. Why? Because it was no longer the dwelling place of God for the people. Jesus Christ now intercedes for his people directly to God. The temple of God has now become the heart's of the people of God. This is so huge, and I want you to see this today, why this is good news. It's good news, number one, because Christ, in Christ, we are no longer separated. The curtain was a reminder that God was in a place you cannot get. That we're separated from God because of our sin. Isaiah 59, verse 2, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so he does not hear. Everyone will be judged. The good news is Jesus came to be judged on our behalf of those who would put their faith in him. This is what we call substitutional atonement. Romans 3.25, God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. It is only Jesus' blood that ultimately makes us one with God, releases us from the curse of death, and brings us new life. This is the good news. Because Jesus now stands as our intercessor, making our relationship with God a real and enduring thing. Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, he is able to save To the utmost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. No more pilgrimages to the temple. No more blood sacrifices are needed because Jesus fulfilled what was needed so that we can come daily to our Lord and have intimate relationship with him. I pray this is good news to you today. If you don't know him, repent and believe and be saved. It's also good news because Christ had to rise or we have no hope ourselves to rise. Paul makes this oh so clear in 1 Corinthians 15. I'll read briefly verse 12 through 23. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. 
For we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are still not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, Adam, and by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And so I, I implore you to lean in and understand the redeemed are given ears to hear and eyes to see and savor this good news that what you need is not religion. What you need is Jesus and a life transformed of faith in Him and trusting Him and growing in Him. The saved are given faith to believe in Christ. John two twenty two. When therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The belief that we see in our text today is, is a, a welling up and a, a deepening of belief in God in that this part of the testimony came into view and it sweetened their faith. As Jesus said exactly, it would happen in chapter 2. John is the first to admit that neither he nor the other disciples understood what Jesus meant at the time. It was only after Jesus was raised from the dead that they recalled what he had said and believed that word. They believed in Jesus, but the gospel came into view in a way that it hadn't been before. That's what the text says today. All of you who can hear my voice today, who have heard the testimony of Jesus, that he did indeed die, and that he rose again on the third day, that he reigns at the right hand of the Father today, making intercession for all who believe in him, who trust in him and lay their lives down for him. Don't forget the purpose of all of John's gospel we find it later in chapter 20. We've referenced it many times in our two-year journey, and I say it again today, John 20, 30, 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are, not, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Will you believe? Do you believe? If you do, you have new life in Jesus. If you do, you are dead to your old self and now alive in Christ, reborn spiritually. If you believe in him, then you have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And the life you now live in the flesh, you live by faith. In the Son of God, who loved you and gave himself for you. That's Galatians 2.20. So what do we do with this good news, church, today? The same thing Peter and John did. They went out and told their families and friends about it. What does it say in the end of verse 10? Then the disciples went back to their homes. Why their homes? Testify what they had seen. Can you imagine what Mary, Jesus' mother, who was being cared for by John as Jesus instructed John to do on the cross, would have felt as John runs through the door 
of their home to tell her of what he has seen? Church, we too must not keep the good news to ourselves, but testify to those whom God puts in our path. We must shout it from the rooftops. Jesus is alive. This is the good news of grace and power of God to redeem undeserving sinners to eternal life through Jesus' perfect life, sinless life, substitutional and sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection from the grave. These sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, from the eternal wrath they deserved. And they are reconciled into an eternally secure relationship with God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text, this beautiful telling of these details of just the empty tomb and the way it impacted those who saw it. And the just the, 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 the worship and the wonder and the good news it, and the belief it, it stirred in their souls, I pray that it would do the same for us today. We who are guilty of slowing down in gratitude, of feeling somehow in a, in a losing of our sight of the amazing grace you've given us, that somehow we need more grace. No, Lord, you have done amazing things, far more than we could ever ask or dream set us free for you have made us alive you rose Christ and you raised us to new life in him a promise of a great celebration in your eternal kingdom awaits but I pray we would not be slow to speak the good news of Jesus that we would not be selfish to, to withhold these things, but the overflow of the joy of the Lord, the gospel at work in our own lives, would spill out. And we wouldn't worry how crazy we may seem, for you will do your holy work as the good news falls upon dead ears and blind eyes to awaken those you are, whom you ordain. Lord, we have much to celebrate, for you have brought us back to life in Christ. Hear us now as we worship you in great celebration this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.